welcome to the September episode of the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Hannah Rogers and regular listeners will notice that mine is not the normal voice you hear. I work alongside Sarah, our usual presenter, at Garden Organic and have been handed the reins for one month only while Sarah enjoys a well-earned break. This month, as usual, I'll be joined by my colleagues at Garden Organic, Chris Collins and Anton Rosenfeld. Chris and I talk about houseplants and the therapeutic benefit they can bring if you haven't got much outside space. We also reflect on the successes and the failures of the year so far, and Chris shares his advice for all the new growers to keep their interest in the garden going throughout the autumn and winter months. Later during our interview, Chris is joined by Garden Organic Ambassador Caroline Holmes. Caroline is a world-renowned garden historian and an expert on a really broad range of topics, ranging from impressionism all the way through to dung. Finally, we look at some of the questions Garden Organic members have sent our way, discussing seed saving, bare soil and wood life. As always, we're grateful to our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. This is my go-to website when I need to buy anything for the garden, and also the odd Christmas present. Just visit organiccatalogue.com to browse their range, and if you're a member of Garden Organic, you receive a 10% discount on all orders. You won't be surprised to hear that we're still recording remotely, so I hope you can forgive the odd crackle and be kind on this rookie at the helm. Sarah will be back soon, I promise. So, Chris, September, it's often a month when things start to slow down. Is that the case for you? Yeah, I think you're kind of near, near in that crossroad, aren't you? Of um, You're still kind of ticking over the garden. There's still quite a lot going on, but your mind is starting to think about the big changes that are not so far away. You know, autumn will be soon. That's planting time, bulb time, put new crops in. There's loads going to go on around there. So you, you're kind of in that halfway house of still enjoying your allotment, still enjoying the balcony, but knowing that um, those changes are not far away. Mm, it feels like maybe a sort of period of calm. You've still got a bit of good weather you know like you say things are still looking nice you've still got some crops coming and it's just that opportunity to actually relax and and enjoy what you've produced yeah it's not time to um it's, it's the quiet before the storm a bit like the you know, end of the winter you know there's all this work coming up but um don't don't jump ahead enjoy what's going on still because you've kind of worked hard for it to get to this point so what will you be doing down on your allotment this month what are your priorities well, I'm still cropping down there, but I'm looking at um, putting in stuff that I want to continue into the winter, really, that I can carry on growing. So I'm looking at broad beans. Um, I'm looking at growing those. I'll start those in root trainers, and they've, they'll they'll go in ready to eat next year. And also, it's a good time to put those cooler crops. I'm going to still put rocket in. I'll put some onions in as well. I'll put in a cut-and-come-again salad, spinach. I've had trouble with those plants this year because it, it was so hot in spring. So I'm quite looking forward to keeping that sort of freshness growing, really. As for the balcony, I mean, the balcony's just been fantastic this year. And um, I will just carry on ticking it over. We'll get out and I deadhead them, keep the flowering going. I've got loads of geraniums out there that are just still flowering and flowering. I have got a massive glut of tumbler tomatoes. Um, I, will, I will bring you some tumbler tomatoes. I've got, <laughs> Don't, I've got, I've got loads too. <laughs> have you? Yeah, coming out my ears. So, uh, you know, it's kind of, um, it's all still going on. But it, the balcony is particularly important because I, as you know, I love to fill it with bulbs for next spring. I love to have that anticipation. So I'll be picking up the catalogues very shortly and thinking about what I want to put in. I mean, I think it's quite a tricky month sometimes, isn't it? Because you you can have a glorious Indian summer, but actually you might suddenly find it plummets and you've got that first frost. And when we're talking about the variation across the country, you know, we know that 
for listeners sort of a lot further north it, you know it's it, the cold is starting to to bite and I guess that's one thing to be wary of is any plants that you need to start thinking about protecting or bringing indoors I know that I remember when I worked up in Scotland uh, these are ornamental plants like Dicksonia like tree ferns and stuff they would start hessian wrapping them towards the end of September in anticipation of, of the cold weather coming in in London it's different I can't remember the last time we had a cold September in fact it can be one of the sunniest months of the year if the sun's out in September I'm a happy man so one of the things that I'd like to sort of talk a bit more about is houseplants. And I had the privilege of editing a video that you did earlier in the summer where you talked about your houseplants. And I yeah. thought it was really interesting. I'm quite lucky that I've always lived with somewhere with a garden. So for me, houseplants are very much decoration. I have them to make the house look nice and because I can never choose pictures or ornaments. But one of the things you said was really interesting that for you, the houseplants and that greenery is the therapy. And I think as we come into the sort of colder, perhaps darker months, it's something quite interesting to explore is how you can keep that greenery going, particularly if you're living in a flat or in an urban area. Well, as you know, they've become very trendy mm. in recent years. And I think that's because we have um, two things. We have a renting pop, much bigger renting population, probably a bit more nomadic. And I know my relationship with houseplants began when I was very young because I moved around a lot. We were never in one place. When I left home, I would move around quite a lot. And they were my garden. In fact, I lived in a bedsit in uh, Charlotte Street in Brighton. I had 200 houseplants in <laughs> one bedsit. And I, I actually blew up three tellies, missed them down while I was there. And they were my garden. And I just think that it, my flat now is hard flat half forest in some parts of it and i just mm. think they, they just provide this incredible atmosphere to the home you know as soon as you're through the door you just relax you know they, they definitely have a well-being effect on you and uh, and it's not so i mean if i go into someone's house there's no houseplants it looks it almost looks bare to me to be honest with you yeah and i think it's it's interesting to look at them that way and not the way that i've previously looked at them that just a bit of decoration so what would you be doing what would you be thinking about for your houseplants you know sort of september end of september as we're looking um yeah towards the colder months well it's kind of it was interesting you say about them being ornaments uh, because that's quite i think people buy them for that reason and then they forget to water them and look after them and then oh yes so, yeah, <laughs> so i'm not saying you do but you know <laughs> a lot, i'll go into many a house and there's a, there's a dead cheese plant on top of the radiator and they go what's wrong with my plant I'm like, what do you think's wrong we haven't watered it for four months so i people think need to get through their head that it's a living creature in the house like a garden and they need to pay attention. The big rule like as we come into the colder months, certainly, is, and the radiator is bang on, is keep them away from heat sources because they just won't enjoy that. You're out all day. It's quite cool in the flat. You come in, you whack the heating on, temperature goes right up, and they just transpire so heavily and you get browning around the edge of the leaves. You'll just make them miserable like that. You really will. So keep them away from heat source. The other thing I think is quite important is as the days get shorter, just reduce the watering. Through the summer, I water my houseplants really freely, even my cactus. But as I get towards the end of this month, I will start to reduce it. And actually, as we go into the dark months, winter, if I water my plants once every three weeks, that's quite generous. So think about it as daylight. The longer the days, the more frequency of the water, I think. The other thing I do is, uh, and this is great fun, is I, I've got quite a lot that will divide. So houseplants are notoriously easy to propagate. So I have calathias and spathophyllums. And what I'll do is I'll pop, knock them out of the pot and I'll just separate them and pot them into separate pots. And they, they make quite a good crimby presence. I hope I get you in the secret centre. I could do with some more. You never have enough, do you? No, you never. I could listen. If my my wife, good lady wife, let me, there would be no room in here. 
<laughs> it would be a jungle. It would be back in that bed set, I tell you. <laughs> the other thing you can do as well is you don't need to – people tend to buy a houseplant and have one plant in their houseplant. Well, you can mix it up a bit. These are all rainforest plants, so they'll grow in environments where there's actually not much soil. It's leaf-led, and they grow in layers. So, you know, a plot maybe where you can have a, like a sweeping fig as a main character, then underneath that some um, some ground-cover plants like spathophyllum, you know, the peace lily, and then you can put some trailing trellis – to mix plants together, create your own little rainforest in a pot. It's, it's got such opportunity that I think we overlook. And like you say, they're, they're quite easy to propagate because they're notoriously difficult to get hold of organically and particularly peat-free. But actually, if you just, with a bit of knowledge, learn how to propagate yeah. them, you've got yeah, you've got loads coming to then swap with friends. Lots of them go, will just go in water. You take a cutting off them, you know, and you put them in water. Lots of them will mm. root. And you're right, it gets you round that. You know, feeding the peat industry because a lot of them will be grown in, in, in peat in nursery conditions. And uh, I know that's changing now and it's all positive. But if you wanted to be sure and pure organic, then that's a good way around it. So one of the other things I think is important to do in September is to just take a bit of time to have a think about your successes and failures. Look back what's worked and what hasn't. So I'm keen. You're going to make me jealous. Tell me about your successes. Well, yeah. So I've been. I mean, it's a slow, really slow start to um, the year because it was so. It was such a dry spring, wasn't it? So it's, it's very hot and dry. So everything grew really, really slowly, quite slowly. But it's really taken off as the summer got going. It really took off, and I think my successes have been quite things like I've got so many courgettes and squashes, tomato. <laughs> a lot of those sort of hot crops have done really well, and I tend to grow them through um, mypex where the ground's really weedy. I put mypex down and I slip plant through, and I put a mulch and it almost creates like a little mini microclimate and so they perform very very well tons of potatoes and tons of onions and i think one thing has been really pleasing is i sowed a lot of hardy annuals calendulas nasturtiums these kind of plants straight into the ground in strips along the side of the beds and so it's been incredibly colorful and then i think um, i mean i haven't enjoyed the same success as you this year but i think that's probably due to our uh, varying experience in in growing but one of the things we've really got on top of this year was our succession planting for lettuce yeah now normally i mean i'm the worst for it we get all excited in the springtime we sow a load of seeds and then suddenly you're inundated with flipping lettuce you're giving it away because there's only so much you can eat but this year we we really got on top of it we sowed the mixed leaves the cut and come again and then what we did is gradually split them out into plants and actually sowed them in beds and we sowed them in different beds mm. so in different places across the gardens we kept some indoors and we kept some in the greenhouse and that just meant we could keep that continual supply of lettuce I mean I'll admit we still did give quite a lot away but succession planting is something that I think certainly I've struggled with and I think a lot of beginners may find it the same because you like to think springtime planting get it all done move on to the next job does it take the planning or is it a case of just holding back and not doing everything at once I like to see the soil fall, so it's a good filler. Like you just described there, you can dot stuff around in borders and in raised beds. And so I, I would say with those kind of plants, you can look to sow every two or three weeks just to keep going. And if you think about it, you get a packet of seeds, lettuce and salad. There's like hundreds of seeds in there, so you can be quite liberal with them. And I think that what maybe the mistake people make is they sow one crop and they go, oh, that was brilliant. And then you think it's over. I think that, you, you know, to keep going, to keep indulging yourself and really – I mean, there's nothing like fresh salad leaves. You soon get used to having that fresh food on your plate, and it's no comparison with stuff that you buy out of a shop. 
So go on then, what are your failures? I, I've had a big trouble when it was hot early in the season with stuff bolting. So spinach, which is one of my favourite crops, that kept bolting in the heat. And that's partially because of the heat, but also I think a watering regime. I should have been tighter with my watering to, to stop that happening. Um, so that's been a bit of a disappointment, really. I did. Um, I've, I had some potatoes go over a bit early as well. I didn't have as many as once. And I think, again, that's probably a watering issue. So, yeah, there has not everything's been a result, I don't think. And I think I will put that partially down to being it's been some, quite a, a freaky spring a hot freaky spring i think that's um it's interesting the watering is it's been our biggest challenge we had a this is our first year with a greenhouse really exciting but i think we've been complacent with our watering so we had uh, some blossom ends right on our tomatoes and we had aubergine which just they had spectacular flowers but they just never set f- yeah. fruit and i think you know you i think it's easy to look out and see it chucking it down with rain and forgetting that your greenhouse is still as dry as ever. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a discipline, isn't it? Remember, I always say, my, the, 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 um, you know, the watering is the most crucial job and you kind of need to just check it daily, really. You need to get into that routine. It's quite typical if you get flower drop and no fruit forming, that is more than likely an irrigation issue. Um, you need to keep that soil evenly moist, not too wet, just you know enough moisture in there, and they'll retain the flower and the fruit will form. It happens with a lot of plants. So we can't talk about failures without talking about black fly. And <laughs> yes. you, we, I mean, it's just been a nightmare for me. Has it been the same? Uh, absolutely. I, I When I took out my broad beans in, uh, in June, there was so much black from they were even covered all the pods and I my hands were stained black for oh, days yeah, yeah. and I really remember the, the ladybirds turning up thinking oh they'll sort this out and uh, no you'd have needed a you'd have needed a one foot by one foot ladybird to sort that <laughs> out um, so it has been I think they just again really enjoyed that hot spring has been an exceptional year I think that if I was going to do it next year and I was worried it was going to happen again I might look and I only use this as a last resort but you get organic deterrent sprays and you you start putting them on every couple of weeks as the plant grows and they make the the leaves taste bitter and that's all to deter the, the black fly but i'd kind of only do that if it was a last resort i'm hoping this year was a bit of an unusual year i mean what we found which is really interesting is at garden organic talking about it there's the majority of people have had a real nightmare but actually there are one or two who've been sort of come out of it pretty unscathed and they're the real sort of horticulturalists that have been growing organically for kind of 20 30 years in the same place and I think that's quite interesting because it's a real evidence that if you can get that balance right, you know, you were talking about all the um, hardy annuals and things you planted in your borders, you know, and again, I'm guilty of this. And I'm, I'm sure lots of beginner gardeners are. You compartmentalise your veg patch and your flower garden. Yeah. And actually doing what you've done and just trying to bring in a lot more plants that will feed those beneficial insects to just keep them coming in. And then hopefully you do stand a much better chance if we do have another year of black fly, which hopefully we won't. (laughs) They'll definitely be there. But (laughs) But not in such numbers. But having that mosaic, I suppose you call it that, I think is the bedrock of organic gardening. Having lots of stuff mixed together, not too monocropped. And also, I just think that looks, that's my kind of garden. I think it looks very beautiful. So don't be afraid to do it. And as time progresses you'll get that balance in the garden and those pests won't be so much of a problem so then the other thing that i think could be interesting to talk about is those people that have just started out so we know this year has just been such a strange year that in the springtime we're all in lockdown and there was a huge huge surge in people taking up gardening for the first time or looking to their outside space and seeing how can they they can really make the most of it what would be your top tips for how they then maintain that 
throughout the year? Well, I would definitely try and put some sort of skin in the game, if you like. So I think one of the things about being a gardener is we're all an- always anticipating what's coming up. We're always pl- we're always kind of three months ahead of ourselves in some ways. And so what I'll be doing in my balcony, which is what I recommend, is I'll, I'll, as my summer season comes to an end, I will be planning for a big burst of colour in the spring. So I've got something to look forward to. So I'll be putting okay. my bulbs in. All my bulbs will go in. I will put in forget-me-nots and pansies and primroses and uh, primulas. And so I'll have something going on out there that I know I can anticipate. So it kind of maintains my interest through the dark months. It's not just a dead space. You can also, you know, you can still grow food this time of year. I'll put in spinach. You get like winter crops like mizuma and oriental mustards and these sort of plants. So you can still graze away out there. The worst mistake you can do is what you've just described is, you know, the days get shorter, you shut the door and you no longer take any interest in it because we'll all be busy again probably next spring. And it'd be a shame to lose what is such an amazing pastime. Yeah, I suppose it's any ways that you can remind yourself, I guess, because for everyone but the kind of diehard gardeners, as the weather starts to turn, you just think, oh, the last thing I want to do is is go out into the garden. But but it's you know it's it's interesting what you say about putting those bulbs in. So you've got something to look forward to. Yeah, so you've got that skin in the game. I think it's also important that, um, and this is for all fair weather gardeners, you miss a trick if you're not out there in the autumn and the winter because they're actually beautiful seasons. And and I think you kind of bond with gardening, you know, during those days in a way. It becomes all you know it, when you're quite close to nature and its changes is what make of the gardener. And I and I think it's a shame to miss out on that. And I suppose, you know, you sort of say to to think about bulbs and what you can plant and, you know, you start to see the seed catalogues start to arrive over sort of September, October. And I find that a really exciting time. You know, it's like the equivalent of when I was a kid and you got the Argos catalogue, you're folding sure. down corners, yeah. you're thinking what you grew last year and, and what, you know, what you'd like to grow. And it's just, it's sort of, it is that, you know, like we say, it's that time to think about what you've really enjoyed this year and make sure you're you're putting yourself in a good position for next year that that um planning that anticipation you just hit it on the head there get your catalogs in have a look go and see go and visit a botanic garden or a national trust mm. property go and get inspired take the family along if you've, if you've discovered gardening this summer uh, i tell you now i implore you don't let it go because you'll just you know it just brings you happiness well-being i can't say favorably enough about the fine art of gardening and i know it is there's no bad in it at all and that's, I guess that's a, the overarching message, isn't it? That you you just give something a try and we'll all have successes and failures. So yes. if you have just started this year and something's not worked, you've had a crop that's been decimated by slugs. Well, that's life. And yeah, it's done, you know, don't, yeah. Want, don't listen. Wisdom is born from error and gar- that rule <laughs> applies from gardening as well as life. And I think that if do little things, you know, grow some pea shoots on the, on the windowsill and then, you know, put a rose in on the garden and watch that flower next year and just feel it out and just make sure you're relaxing and enjoying it there's no big hurry no big rush take a breath enjoy the garden that's fantastic wise words thank you chris okay cheers anna our interview this month is with a true world expert and garden organic ambassador caroline hines author broadcaster lecturer garden designer tour guide i could go on and on Caroline is a garden historian and is normally exceptionally busy travelling the world at this time of year, but because of lockdown has been grounded. She kindly spared some time to share with Chris her passion for gardening, in particular gardens through history and Monet's garden. Caroline also treats us to a virtual tour of her garden, which sounds absolutely beautiful. Really pleased you could join 
us today, Caroline. And I'm delighted to be invited. So I'm going to start with the obvious question. Um, where does the passion come from? Where did you get that from? Oh, goodness me. That, that's actually eating. <laughs> if I'm going to be perfectly honest, uh, yes, it, it is definitely eating and, and scent. So uh-huh. it's very much a sort of sensual thing with the gardens. And actually, I changed careers in my late 20s and retrained in horticulture for and chose to go into herbs and specialised in herbs. And they absolutely encapsulate the eating, the scent and history. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated at the way people use plants. Funnily enough, we're having a family quiz tonight and I'm going to show some wall paintings of plants that go back you know to the 19th century bc and i can say who can say you know what period this was and that link with the pleasure and the enjoyment that is timeless in sort of the history of the, of the human race really so it's almost like a, it's diuretical isn't it in a way it's it, it shows a strand of from a long way back I, I remember going when i worked at westminster abbey i worked there for a while and that garden's 900 years old so it's kind of this massive line of, of history culture food art everything you think gardening is central isn't it to that absolutely and indeed it doesn't matter the thoughts that we have changed as humans you want to be dry you want to be warm and you want to be well fed and if something tastes nice yeah. then your life is enhanced yes yeah, so it's almost like a key a foundation stone isn't it to everything i think I, well, not that I'm biased, of course. <laughs> <laughs> me neither, me neither. <laughs> How important is gardening to culture, do you think, in the UK? I think it's very important. And I think it doesn't have to be complicated or sophisticated. Um, it's And again, going back to herbs, I, I always say they're as good for the beginner gardener as they are for somebody who's gardened for years and years and years. And it's the enabling. You know, you, you go back, I don't know, when I was young, you did your cress on a flannel or something yeah, like that you cress an yeah. <laughs> it is that with a child uh, and i haven't actually been into a school recently so when i had i had my my own children were humiliated so they didn't want me to come in but my <laughs> nephews were thrilled if i came in and i would take plants and i'd show how the roots were growing and that fascination you know, children just love it and they can watch something growing and it is, it's marvellous. And then if you can eat it as well, get back to food. But it is the, the sheer pleasure of plants and gardens and open spaces. So if you're going to teach a, a child about art or, so I know the Impressionist is one of your things. So if you, you can use a garden as a catalyst for that. So if you're teaching kids in a, in a small space to grow a bit of food, then it leads on to other broader discussions or education. Yes, I mean, if you and I, I'm not a teacher. And so um, whether I'm sort of the wrong person to be saying this, but you've got it's it's colour. So when you've got small children and it's the idea of identifying a colour. Um, and then actually I have got one grandson and his mother's very keen on him smelling things. Yeah. And it's it's he obviously can't verbalise what he's smelling. But because she's done it really early on, he sort of responds to nice, nice smells. Again, yeah, sure. Sort of the herbs and things, yeah. So in a way, I mean, I do a lot of stuff with kids, uh, uh, you know, through my Blue Peter days and stuff, and I find them very interested in the fact that you, um, they respond to it very positively. There, there's no um, barrier, and, but it almost feels natural to, to them to, to garden. But if you were, um, say, trying to teach about art, where would you start in relation to the garden? 
Well, I think that's that's really interesting because I've noticed in schools, first of all, I thought, well, that seems a bit stupid. They, you know, they copy famous artists. And then I realised actually it's not such a bad idea that in the style of you are by default introducing them, shall we say, to the impressionists by saying, you know, here is here are Monet's water lilies, let's say. Uh, and, and the children copy them and they're looking at the light on the on the water and the, the sky and everything else. Um, and then actually thinking again with oh, this is gosh, I'd forgotten that when our younger son was four, I think he was before he went to school and they had a, the first of the big Monet exhibitions at the Royal Academy. And the only way I could go was if he came with me. And I did feel a weeny bit mean <laughs> to take you know, a four-year-old to a, ser- a Monet series paintings. And as we were going along, I just said to him in apology, I said, I'm afraid the paintings are a weeny bit similar. And this with all the knowledge of the world, he said, can't you see the way that the colours are changing in the different lights? And I thought, do you he's know what? <laughs> yeah, he's Why am I po- and I think that's the, in that I thought, actually, you'd think you need to do the Disney factor and you do need to have fun. But let children will surprise you. I'm going to now because I know one of your specialist things is the Monet Garden. Yeah. And I, wa- I wanted to just kind of ask a bit more about that because you've written books about it and you lecture about it. And, and, uh, and everybody kind of knows this garden, the wall lilies and the changing of his eyesight during it. And, but do, do you plant-based that? How do you approach that? What is a, quite a big subject? It, it is a big subject. And I have approached it from every single <laughs> um Because, uh, for example, last year they had a big water lily conference, uh, which started in Paris and then we went to Giverny and then we went down to where the water lilies were bred at, at a place called Le Temple sur Lot. And there you had people who were absolutely passionate about water plants. As you quite rightly said, of course they knew who, who Monet was, but their knowledge of art was, I mean, that wasn't there. They were mostly American and funnily enough, actually five from Wuhan, poor souls. Um, and we had various other chi- Chinese who come so how do I approach it? Again, you try and pick up on where the interest lies. So obviously with them, the interest lay with how the pond looked, how the water lilies were growing. And I have to say, that's not my speciality at all, although I did a lot of research on them. Um, then I've taken art society groups there, and they're very keen to look at the motifs. And Giverny, from the point of view both of a gardener and an artist, the house sits with its back to the hills and the hills are on the north side. Uh So it's a wonderfully protected site that has the full arc of the day's light from dawn to dusk falling on the garden. And one of the nice outcomes of the conference was I drove independently down to Le Temple sur Lot and stayed overnight in Giverny. And the gardener said to me, would you like, I start work at 7 a.m. Would you like to come in at 7 a.m.? Well, I was up that street at 7 (laughs) a.m. And and I've never been, you see, and then you see the the sun literally, it was August, end of August. Watch the sun actually rising over the garden and beginning to catch all the tops. It was so exciting. So really what, inspired, exciting. what inspired his paintings probably had at that time, isn't it? Because uh, otherwise that's a very busy garden, isn't it? It must get a lot of footfall going through it. 
So obviously you're well known for that. You've got this book written, and well, a few books. Is it a couple of books? Yeah, I've done Monet at Giverny, Impressionists in Their Gardens. And actually, with lockdown, uh, I have a, a, a sort of one hour, and that's for Art Society's lecture, Impressionists in Their Gardens, because so many artists came from around the world to Paris to study art uh, that they then went back, and you've got American Impressionists and Australian Impressionists, and I call it Impressionists in Their Gardens because all of them, if they didn't have gardens, used friends' gardens to, to paint. And you've got a, a wonderful international selection of paintings. And the Australians are particularly interested. 1888 was centenary of settlement in Australia. And the artists particularly said, you know, all this business of talking about painting nature and being at one with nature in Australia, we are painting nature. We've only got to take a train and walk five, ten miles, and we are in untouched country up in the bush. And our Impressionist art, and they call themselves the Heidelberg School, should celebrate the, the drought, the harshness of our light. And there's a wonderful selection of Australian paintings uh, and a core of them that painted them. Um, with the zenith landscape as it's described it's really interesting and you, things like fruit trees absolutely you know hanging on in there because they're so because they're in such an extreme environment yes yes uh, yeah. they look much more japanese actually than they look european because they're because they're stunted and by the yeah. environment yeah. yeah so basically so like that's interesting what you're saying the monet garden is a catalyst for all these other environments except he never let them go in i mean that's what's really interesting if if you look at his paintings he's the only one who painted there and actually they had american impressionists who came and stayed in the village so he he never didn't invite them in only monet painted painted and so i we i was when i was doing the water lily book with with the guy i was chatting about this with the guy who owns the water lily nursery now and we came to the conclusion that he suddenly realised he got, you know, what what is it they say, a USP. If he painted his garden and only he painted it, and the way he created his pond at the time was really cutting edge because everybody had formal water pools, which they planted their water lilies in. He had this sort of naturalistic pond. So he was looking at what would have been a formal setting he, he naturalised, basically. So we would take that for granted now. Yeah, and the way he planted his plant flowers in the upper garden, if you look at the actual plant, it's very formal, but it's to make the most of the light and the sunlight. And the effect is totally sort of floriferous and informal. I, I, I know, because obviously we all know this garden, the Monet Garden, but it's great to hear it described in, in those terms. I'm going to bring you on to, a little bit more onto horticulture now in the sense yes, that obviously you're a historian. What, what, is, what I'm curious about is... Um, Especially it's not present-day organic gardeners is is what what still applies. I'm always quite interested. I I train on Brighton Parks and the old boys there were big on composting, soil health, yeah. this kind of stuff. And I'm wondering that in this a day and age of of uh, social media and flower shows, have we carried this knowledge forward? Do you think? Yes. What we lack, and I'm, I judge the local allotment. Well, not this year, but I judge we have five allotment sites in Bury St Edmunds, which is near me. I have often said, whereas in the past you had you learnt it because, you know, you grew up with somebody who gardened, you know, and you so you were that's how it was passed on. Yeah. And some of the allotment sites have a sort of uh, that's part 
of it. Somebody who's had an allotment for a long time will advise others. But not all of them do that. And I have sometimes been there when we're doing our judging. And you see people who are really struggling, who've never gardened before. The principles, and I wrote a, one of my other books is um, New Shoots, Old New Shoots, Old Tips. Yeah, I saw that. At, yeah, gardening advice. There are so many things. And when you read them and actually thinking about going back to the sort of Roman times down in Cornwall, there's a village called Chysorster, mm-hmm. which was but wasn't Romanized. It was a, just a little settlement, stone houses. And I was looking at the way they all had these sort of little terraced gardens by the house. And I realized that each one had positioned their little terraced garden so that it faced south. Now, what the Victorians did when they built their greenhouses and their great glass houses was that they would grow early salad crops by catching the, the, the sunlight early in the year. Because obviously a plant needs to be warm and it needs its maximum amount of light. And I thought, my goodness me, you know, in 100 A.D., they were doing that. They knew same thing. They, yeah, same thing. Wow. And I think that you look at things and it's always worth looking at old tips because you think, oh, yeah, I could some. And you say Victorians. They just wanted to keep the people occupied. You know, I mean, the enthusiasm for double digging and all this really <laughs> yeah. labor intensive uh, jobs. It's very much where you can't have the, the, the labor force sort of sitting on their forks and not doing enough. So um, there are elements where really it's just making work. It's keeping people busy. Basically. And keeping them busy. Yes, absolutely. Well, they did come up with some genius stuff in a way. Like, I suppose you think maybe like um, cavity wall heating for peaches and stuff like that. That's Brilliant. Still, very, still it, applicable now, isn't it? Very much. One hundred percent. And the, I've just been that uh, fact doing a, a lecture on, on exactly that, that how we're starting in the late Georgian period, but the Victorian period, the varieties of fruit. And as you say, having the peach houses and Joseph Paxton, you know, hero of the hour, who takes, creates the Crystal Palace in 1851 and then takes that macrocosm uh-huh. and thinks, right, actually, the way these greenhouses are put together can be condensed down into the smallest little piece of glass that people can have in their own back gardens. I was going to ask about heritage varieties because I know you grow some and you touched on fruit there. Do you grow heritage varieties of fruit or is is it something else? I'm quite, I'm interested by old varieties. So, yes, we have planted quite a lot of old varieties. And although just put an apricot in, which is really, I could do with it doing, making a bit more effort. I suppose <laughs> um, that's, that's a new uh, Moorcott. It's a new variety. Um, and it is through the Heritage Seed Library that I particularly like all their different beans, which I right. try and grow. Right. But so you're right. It's, it's going outside the, what I call the, uh, the sphere of the F1, those sort of bog standard plants that, you know, you can get from a garden centre. It's looking at it a little bit, Again, a bit of a broader horizon. Yes, because, you know, if there's only two or four or six of you, you don't want everything coming <laughs> right at the same time. time. <laughs> yeah. you know, actually, we had a glut of chervil early, early in the year. Don't ask me how I managed to do it, but we looked like chervil. We ate so it seeded itself everywhere. And I, I love <laughs> it. So we just ate it in very large quantities. I'm going to pick you up on herbs again, because I know that's yeah. a big, big thing for you. If you were... If we get a lot of people at Garden Organic who are new to it. 
again, there's this kind of, I suppose, a disparity between those who've gone, being brought up with it, but this new wave of people coming through. What, what advice would you give to someone if they wanted to just start a little herb garden and grow it and put it in their food? Uh, there's an awful lot to be said. If, for example, uh, rosemary and sage, brilliant in pots. They, if you think of them, they're, they're, they're rocky Mediterranean plants. Ideally, if you can get a terracotta pot, then you're, you're off and you're away. And uh, actually, rosemary and sage grow very well together if you've got a reasonable size terracotta pot. Uh, then you need, you know, what is easiest to grow is another element. And unfortunately, parsley is not the easiest to grow at all, although it's delicious. And I've said chervil, I've just mentioned it, is so, so easy, easy to, to grow. Do, yeah. It germinates brilliantly. It has a lovely, gentle um, aniseed flavour. My feeling with many herbs is if you've got space go for perennials because you've then got them and if you haven't got a lot of sun in your garden if they're in pots if you can find a you know somewhere where they can go on holiday and, get and they'll still be alive when you get back <laughs> top up your tan you know when i was thinking no 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 they need to go on holiday so oh, they're they in shady spots they, they need that mediterranean atmosphere. they need a wee bit of sunshine <laughs> so if you if you take them take them off and take them off on their holidays now i mean roman writer pliny for example, I'm going off with, from herbs. But he said the importance of holidays for vines, which and he writes a whole section on that the vines should be allowed to go on holiday. And the way they go on holiday is that they are released from whatever framework you've tied them to and you let them scramble. And he describes them rejoicing, you know, on the ground. Yeah, that freedom, not being As, told to wires and, and not yeah. back to spur and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and you go to somewhere like West Dean and what do you see? They crank down all the vines off the wall or off the you know the 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 roof and have them pointed down because of course all then all the auxins come to the top so he was absolutely right Um, i'm gonna i'm I'm a big um i'm a big lover of composting as most um as most of us are at garden and you've got one book titled the little book of dung i'm really curious about this so maybe you can tell me a little bit more about that the not so little book of dung the not so little book of dung my mistake i'd love it to be republished actually because it's the not so little book of dung it is dung in every possible form well, with the dung, it's interesting with the dung because yeah. I remember being a parts apprentice and we used to have um, clover fields when we'd put something to yeah. that. And then at the end of the four or five years, it's quite long stretches of time, a tractor would come along with a big load of horsemen on the back, tip up, and we'd be there with our pitchforks rolling around <laughs> in it, to be honest with you. I've cleared the top of buses, Caroline, after a day like that. And, uh, but I, I wonder whether the dung, you're thinking of using dung in those scenarios, that that is a massive fertiliser resource that Actually, I mean, if you take guano, uh, going right there again, Romans, we think of our our pigeon houses and our dovecots. They realised, let's go for Tudor times. One of the things about having a dovecot was that in the winter, because it's very light, you could transport it right to your furthest fields and give them a really good nitrogenous feed. And they recognised, they knew that because, as you've said, if you've got huge loads of manure, and you've got to do it with a cart, it's very hard work. But if you can transport pigeon dung, uh, then you're absolutely away because you really can get it much further out. You put it in a a hold all and carry it to where you're going (laughs) as opposed to needing a a Ford tractor and a trailer. Anyway, and actually around the world, you know, um, 
because we've got all the, I have to be very careful about saying about bat guano and poor old bats are getting a very bad yeah, press. Got bad press at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you look across the world, that bat guano has been used as well, yes. highly prized. And then the ducks on moats, you see moats would have been dug out probably every 10 years. And that lovely. So you've got that silt, that, that almost yeah. dung silt at the bottom of the, yeah. Right onto the ground. Brilliant. So maybe just paint me a little picture of Caroline in her garden, if that's all right. Uh, Caroline in her garden, the Sioux, the main structure, again, because of, of travelling. Do you know this will come as a surprise to you? Lots and lots and lots and lots of herbs. Brilliant. Ro- roses, fruit trees. And then this is going to sound terribly grand. We have what we call a hornbeam alley. We've got an acre, I should say, that goes uh-huh. right the way through the garden down to to the polytunnel and it's brilliant because you can't see the polytunnel because i put hazel between the polytunnel and the hornby mother so you have this formal lovely shady walk and we have snow it's almost like an avenue you paint a picture yeah, of an I mean, avenue of hornbeam yeah and it's it's not that it's probably about 1.2 meters wide and maybe 10 meters long wow but it absolutely yes it makes it and those because i travel a lot those structures, the Hornby Malay, the fruit trees, the herbs, the roses, they'll do their bit whether I'm here or not. Then I tend to major on salad crops because I can put them in as Quite a quick, quick turnover, yeah. I mean, that's a very simple yeah. picture. And then there's areas of grass. And the polytunnel this year has really been put to good use. I usually only use it in the winter when I'm here. But this summer I've been able to go berserk with the tomatoes. <laughs> brilliant. brilliant. <laughs> a brilliant picture. I've got a picture of you, maybe with a GNT out on the patio looking at this. It's amazing. You've, you've, read, you've read my blog about this. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? It's been an absolute pleasure. If I'd been with you one-to-one, we probably would have talked all day, I should imagine. Quite easy. <laughs> <laughs> but I really appreciate it, Caroline. Just chat to us. It's, it's a lovely, lovely chat. I really, really enjoyed that. It's now time to open the Garden Organic Virtual Post Bag, and I've been joined by Anton and Chris to help with this month's questions, which have all been sent in by Garden Organic members. So the first question is about seed saving. So someone's written in and said they'd like to try seed saving from my peas and beans. I've left some on the plant, but I don't know when to bring them in. Will they get damp and mouldy? And is there anything that they need to look for when choosing which ones to save? Anton, is this something you have experience of? Yeah, I mean, ideally, you want to get them as dry as possible. So you actually want the pods to be at that sort of papery, crackly stage on the plant. And I realise that that's not always possible in the UK climate. That can be tricky. I mean, one way of getting around it is to harvest them sequentially. So sort of look for the dry ones and bring in the driest ones as you're harvesting them. If it really is getting towards sort of end of September, beginning of October, and they're not drying, you can dig out the whole plant and leave them to dry somewhere perhaps hang them upside down in a in a dry space because they're probably not going to dry that well outside after that time of year so chris is that something that that you would do from your allotment certainly well it's interesting because um all my peas now are you know going over they're sort of uh, on their way out and then but i don't sure i'm not sure if i plan this right i kind of quite casual about it so i'll look at look at them and i'll then take some and i'll hang them upside down in the shed i'll put a line a string up with a couple of drawing pins 
and hang them up there and wait them to dry. But I should be planning it better, I think. I think you should be looking out for the strongest plants, the healthiest sort of pods. I think I'll probably be interested to see what Anton thinks about. Maybe um, you should have a bit more structure to your seed saving and, and, and pick the plants a bit more specifically. I think that's right. Often seed saving is a little bit of an afterthought. So what happens is people harvest and eat all the best ones and then sort of save seeds from the manky ones. And then you are actually sort of saving seeds, which are probably not going to get the best chance in life when you go to sow them next year. I mean, you certainly should be looking for disease free plants. You don't want any sort of fungal diseases on the seeds because they can be passed on and particularly any viruses as well, any sort of plants with sort of strange mottled leaves you don't want to be saving the seeds from those and once you've saved the peas and beans and you've got them dry then what do you need to think about when it comes to storage um there are two things really it's dry and cool for storage in fact dry is the most important that really is the thing to prolong the life of the seeds Often people store things in sheds or greenhouses where the temperature and the humidity really sort of varies hugely. So although that seems a convenient place, it's not the best place to be storing them. If you've got a spare bedroom or something like that, it's probably a better place to be storing them. Um, the, the other thing is just checking them out for any sort of pest damage. Sometimes you get weevils in there. Um, you might not see them, but you see the evidence of their work. You see lots of little little holes appearing in the seeds and little piles of dust. And best way of dealing with those, it sounds a little bit cruel, but is to put the beans in the freezer for a couple of days and that will kill them off. I tend to um, put mine in small bits of small Tupperware when they're fully dry. Is that a good idea, Anton? Yeah, that will keep them dry. Um, one way of really drying them out well is to store them with some rice, which you've actually dry the rice out in the oven first to get it really dry. And then you then you mix it with, with the beans and, and that will help to keep the moisture out. Oh, that's a good tip. Brilliant. OK, well, I think um, we've all seen this year with, with the rush and the panic that people had getting hold of vegetable seeds, that actually planning some seed saving into your growing is a really good organic growing technique. We always save a few seeds. It's always a nice thing to do. It's sort of completing the whole life cycle as well. I find it a very satisfying thing to do. Brilliant. OK, so we'll move on to the second question. And this has come from someone who's only recently started gardening. So they've written and said that they've heard they should avoid bare soil. As their veg patch starts to empty, what would we recommend covering it with? And I suppose the place to start here is whether that's the case. So should we be avoiding having bare soil? And if so, why? Anton, is that something you can enlighten us on? Yeah, certainly. I mean, bare soil is probably the worst thing you can be leaving over the winter, especially with our sort of really heavy rains that we're having, just washes a lot of those hard-earned nutrients out of the soil. And so the plants can't get at them next year. The worst thing you can do is actually digging the soil over because what that does is it, it stirs up quite a bit of the organic matter and it releases nutrients from a sort of bound up form into a more sort of soluble form that will get washed out even more easily easily so really want to avoid doing that sort of digging stuff over even if it looks looks tidy um so yeah bare soil is definitely not what you want to be leaving over the winter so the ideal thing you want to be doing is growing a green manure to take up those nutrients and um, so something like vetch field beans or grazing rye are very good ones to grow over the winter and there's more detail on our website on how how to do that on how to 
grow green manures and pick the best one for growing over the winter. I appreciate that that's not always easy for everybody to do because you do need to get your green manures in by September and perhaps people are still harvesting things at that stage. So the alternative is perhaps to cover your soil with a mulch. So Chris, have you got any sort of experience of using mulches? Uh, yeah, I do, Antoine. I, I, kind of, I have, a, as you know, uh, um, quite a pernicious weed problem on my allotment because it was not touched for six years. So I'm constantly fighting that. And the bottom end of it particularly, I have a lot of bindweed and cooch so I think that's probably a good case for me trying to suppress those weeds over the winter and also do some benefit to that to the soil so I will order in I've got a guy who'll deliver me half a trailer load of, of rotted manure and I'll put that down and maybe put a bit of cardboard over the top of that and then seal it all in with my pegs and tent pegs and leave that for the winter to protect that soil and hopefully improve the soil structure and make pulling out any weeds come the spring those sort of long stringy bindweed roots will come up a much easier if that soil's nice and friable I'm also a big advocate of, you know, I try and keep as much of the allotment planted as I can, to be honest with you. At uh, this time of year, I have all my broad beans are going to go in. So I'll probably start them in root trainers, to be honest with you, in the, in the flat. And then I'll plant them out nice and thick into, into some of my beds. And they'll kind of sit there through the winter for an early crop next early summer. And I quite like to see greenery. I know you're the same. I don't like to see bare spaces. I, I need to plant. I'm also, I mean, I'm quite happy to leave. I've got leeks in. They'll sit there. Brussels sprouts, cabbage, they'll sit there to the winter that i've already put in um, and i'll also have one little last bash at filling stuff out with um the coolest sort of quick crops salad crops um, and so i'll try and keep it as active as i can that sounds very sensible to me if you can be growing produce on it that sounds one of the best options i think it's also important if i put down any um any sort of mulch make sure it's well rotted i mean compost if I've, I've got compost but i want to use that i want to utilize that it's like black gold isn't it? i want to be much more specific with that compost to be honest with you but um some people put down straw but just be a bit, a bit aware that if you put something down that's quite neat and fresh it will take the nitrogen out of the soil the, the microbacteria that break it down will use nitrogen and you can end up depleting the soil a little bit so the more rotted um, the mulch you put down the better really and I know another common um, thing people use as a sort of cover or a mulch is carpet. Is that something we'd, you'd recommend? I would say carpet is not a good idea for a number of reasons. Often it's quite heavily impregnated with chemicals like dyes and also insecticides as, as well. And often it's got a lot of sort of synthetic fibres in there, which as some of the carpet breaks down, it will start releasing microfibres into the soil. So generally we wouldn't recommend carpet. So growing some green manures is your first choice or mulching or covering with something or continuing to grow some crops. Is there any other options? One option is if your plot is not too weedy, um, you could just leave it alone because some weeds like chickweed would actually act as a green manure in themselves. The chickweed isn't too much of a problem and it will help to just protect that soil structure and you could then cut it down and dig it in in the spring. It's almost well, better to have some sort of vegetation than nothing at all, really, I think, because just uh, like uh, Anton said, you'll just the nutrients will leach through and you'll, you'll have a poorer soil come the next growing season. Okay, that's brilliant. Thank you. So our last question is a, a composting one. So this person's written in and said they've got hundreds of wood lice in their compost heap. Are they good to have in the garden or are they something we need to be a bit more wary of? Chris, what do you reckon? 
was it? I, I, it's funny, isn't it? Because as a gardener, all these, you know, decades, really, they've always been around wood lice. I've never really paid them that much attention. They've always seemed incredibly harmless to me. We actually call them brickbats, because I'm from a family of Brummies originally, even though you wouldn't believe it with this accent. <laughs> and uh, I always remember as a gardener, you'd always find them under pots or under bricks. Or as a kid, I remember finding them in those sort of places. But they've always seemed harmless to me. So I assume, I know they eat decaying vegetation. So uh, to me, they, they always seem harmless and, and probably beneficial. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I mean, wood lice like eating decaying matter generally. Um, so they're basically doing a lot of good in your compost. They're helping to break stuff down. I mean, I think this goes with the bigger picture that people are often a bit horrified to find a load of things wriggling inside their compost bin. But most of it's doing a, a lot of good. I almost think of it as a bit like a sort of zoo inside my compost bin. There's all sorts of things. <laughs> That's in a there. brilliant way to describe it. I love that. Because you do get so much stuff going on. I have slow worms in mine. I was going to turn it over and uh, learn from more natural gardeners not to go sticking a fork into it in case there's something in there and I and I t- lifted it up I, there's quite a lot of cardboard in there at the top bit and I lifted it up and um, there's like a 12 group of slow worm little baby ones all wound together so you do find the most amazing things in a compost bin I must admit I'm the same I, I don't like sticking a fork in my compost anymore our compost bin is just like a wormery it is so full of brandling worms wow. which are helping to break the stuff down but I know that if I'm going to stick a fork in there I'm going to be sparing loads of worms so I, I just use my hands and some gloves and get in there and to me it's a great great excuse to just get covered in muck mate I'll tell you I am when I get back home after a lot but the better in my book <laughs> so are there any things that we should be wary of in the compost heap I mean if you've got a lot of fruit flies in there it's a sign that it's perhaps a bit on the damp side and um, so you might be want to be adding a bit more sort of dry matter like cardboard or wood shavings on the other side if you've got lots of ants in there although they're helping to break stuff down then that is generally a sign your compost is a bit on the dry side so you might be wanting to add more sort of vegetable peelings or grass clippings so that sort of mixture of uh, green materials and brown materials is quite fundamental for a balanced balanced compost heap it is that's useful that the the creatures can often be a bit of an early indicator if you've not quite got that balance right but now I'm, I'm sold on wood lice. <laughs> they need a rebrand as a brick bat. <laughs> yeah, we, we, they do. We've been taking our brick bats for granted. That's what I see. <laughs> Brilliant. OK, well, thanks ever so much, both. That's really useful. And we'll see you again next month. Well, we've reached the end of this month's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I would thoroughly recommend looking into Caroline's work and perhaps attending one of her talks or visiting Monet's garden at Giverny as soon as circumstances allow. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do take a minute to like, rate and subscribe so we can help reach as many people as possible and encourage them to grow the organic way. Our thanks again to the Organic Gardening Catalogue for sponsoring this podcast and to Kevin McLeod for the music.